scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11 as we read verses 25 to 30. Hear now the word of God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning with empty hands, hopeful and ready and needful to receive the answer to your promise that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. Would you show us that today by giving us just what our souls need, by giving us the words of your Son, by causing them to take root in our hearts so that we are changed people who don't just know your promises, but who rest in them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So when I was growing up in the 90s, one of the most popular ways to evangelize a person was to lead off with this phrase and with this saying. Maybe you've said it a few times, maybe you've heard it a few times, um, or maybe you're just not 90s enough to have heard this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, very appealing way to, sh- to share the gospel, isn't it? I mean, it's all good news. It's all good. Um, it's very positive. It's incredibly encouraging to hear. It is all sweet and no sour. And I, I guess I would rather someone share the gospel like this than say nothing at all. And yet, and yet isn't there something missing here? Um, the word gospel means good news. Um, for the notion of good news to make any sense, there, there must be something that comes before it. There must be something that's at least assumed or at least understood that, so that the good news is good news, right? The, the gospel message in its fullness includes both things. It includes bad news about us and it includes good news about God. Um, even as the, the scripture reading for today is incredibly sweet, if you look at our New Testament reading this morning, it's... It's hard, right? Our, that reading from Romans chapter 1, it's hard news to hear. And then last week, if you remember our passage last week, it was a passage about judgment. And so between last week's passage and this week's passage, what we have though, when you pair them together, is a beautiful illustration about the way that the presentation of the gospel is intended to work. 
Because last week's passage was, was bad news. It was a hard passage about condemnation against these cities who resisted Jesus. And if you remember, it was telling us that we have to answer to God for our resistance to him. We are guilty for the truth that we receive and that we suppress. We're accountable to God for our unbelief. It was a passage that, where Jesus was threatening whole cities with destruction and judgment. What a hard passage to hear. What a hard passage to preach. But no sooner does he say this, right? He says, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. And then he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He turns the corner immediately. This is sweet news. This is, this is good news, but part of the sweetness of it is knowing that Jesus is not a preacher of exclusively bad news. Because even as the bad news comes out of his mouth, what do we hear? We hear the warmest, sweetest, kindest, most generous invitation human beings have ever heard or ever will hear. Come to me. My yoke is easy. Come to me. My burden is light. I'm gentle and lowly. Learn from me. Do you hear the gentleness of what he's saying here? Sometimes we think that the sort of invitation we have here from Jesus is unique to the New Testament. We think, see, this is the God. You know, a lot of people read this and they say, this is the God that I like. I like the graciousness I see here. I like the kindness of God that I see here. Why can't the God of the Old Testament be like that? Listen to this. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now I hope you hear that and think, see, that's the God that I like. That's what I like to hear. I like to hear that message. This is why I love the New Testament, except that it's the book of Isaiah. It's... This is the Old Testament, right? This is, this is our God. This is our God. This is the same God who has been. This is the same God Jesus preaches. This is, there is not a different God in the Old and the New Testament. And there's not a different message in the New Testament. They, they fit together. They are one harmonious whole. And to God's grace and judgment have always gone together. In the Old Testament or in the New Testament, He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So no sooner, though, does Jesus pronounce judgment, but he reminds his people how ready and how quick he is to show kindness. What's the nature of that kindness in this passage this morning? Well, I'm going to take a very Trinitarian look at this passage. I actually want us to rejoice in the three persons of the Godhead we see here in this passage. So first, we'll see the Father who reveals. Second, we'll see the Son who knows And then third, we'll see the Spirit who gives rest. Um, Those are our three points this morning. 
Let's go right to the first. The first is the Father who reveals. You know, it's interesting uh, how this passage begins in verse 25. It says, it says, at that time Jesus declared, but then he prays. He declares a prayer to the Father. So before he gives the invitation to come, he says something about the Father in a prayer to the Father, but he wants people to hear it. So it's, it's, it's almost like he couldn't say it to his listeners. He wants them to overhear it, but he's saying it to the Father. He's declaring a prayer to the Father, and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He leads off. You know, he's, he's on the heels of these words of judgment to Chorazin and Bethsaida. Even though these cities rejected Jesus, he's not discouraged. He, he's just finished saying that these cities have rejected him. And you would think this would be a, an imprecatory prayer at this point, right? Lord, bring the fire down. Bring the heat down. Jesus' disciples occasionally show that impulse, don't they? And yet Jesus follows up his discussion of being rejected with words of thanks. He gives words of thanks because he's not discouraged. He's not discouraged. He's filled with thanksgiving, even though he's getting rejected right here. Um, instead, he knows something. He knows that his life, his identity, his ministry has been hidden by the Father from those cities. And he rests in the knowledge of that. He actually lets that be something that fortifies him. Because ultimately, what does he find comforting? He finds comfort in knowing that these things belong in the Father's hands. And so he goes to God and says, God, thank you that you hid these things. Thank you that you are in charge of who receives this message, who responds to this message, and what they do with that. See, even Jesus found protection from discouragement by fleeing to the Father and, and trusting him. And, and I think... You know, you're, I'm always looking for application along the way as we're going, even as we want to understand the passage. We want to also appreciate what we need to be picking up, all the breadcrumbs along the way, and we need to be taking them for ourselves. And here we go. It should go without saying that we should do the same. We should entrust ourselves and entrust our sharing of the gospel with people Entrust it to the Father. Don't try to seize it for ourselves and certainly don't become discouraged when we get rejected. Um, Jesus finds comfort in being able to say, for such was your gracious will. One of the things Christians fear is sharing the gospel and then being rejected. You know, if you ask somebody, why didn't you share the gospel with that person? Probably, if they were going to tell you the truth, deep down they would say, I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid of, of being thought silly. I'm afraid of being thought as a simpleton. Uh, I would rather just be quiet and have no one think anything about me at all. And Christians are afraid of being rejected. And so what, what do Christians do? They don't do anything, right? You can't be disappointed if you don't step out and try. Can you imagine if each time we shared the gospel and it didn't go the way we hoped, what if we could pray like Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. If we could follow it up with a, a prayer of thanksgiving. It's not that we're glad the person has rejected the gospel. It's, it's not that at all. But instead, it's entrusting this into the hands that it actually belongs in in the first place. Could you pray that way? 
Could you pray that way after being rejected? Right? Could, you, could you see the goodness of God uh, in seeing his word be rejected by somebody? That's hard to do. It's hard to see the good in that, but Jesus does it. Right? Jesus has the mindset and the heart that we ought to have. And so we ought to emulate him here and thank him that these things belong to him and that they don't ultimately belong in our hands. Jesus has this incredibly God-centered view on these things, right? He, he sees God at the, at the center of all of it. Even when the word is rejected, he sees God at work. But you see, Jesus says more than that too, because it's not like God has just blinded everyone to the truth, right? This is, this is not a passage of, of doom and gloom. He says, you have revealed it to little children, right? Someone is hearing this, and someone will hear this. So, so this is not a hopeless passage where Jesus is just sort of blindly saying, well, God, I can't see any good going on here, but uh, I, I'm glad that you're in charge. And I think that would be a fine attitude as far as it goes. We can trust God even when we don't see any good. But Jesus does see good. He uses this term, little children. He uses the term little children to describe those who in humility hear the gospel and they say yes. Jesus often uses these sort of terms for his followers. Uh, He calls his followers little ones. Uh, He calls them least. He calls his people sheep. Um, We are the ultimate sheeple. It's not an insult. (laughs) Jesus loves us very much. And this is how he thinks of us. By design, we're meant to follow someone else. We are meant to do that. It's why Jesus uses the word sheep for us. Um, childlike simplicity is something that God demands of us, but that we can't give ourselves, right? This is like asking a person to turn into a tortoise. We, this is just not something that we have the power to do. And so what has to happen instead, we need, to, need, we need a work of the Spirit to take place in our own hearts. We need changed hearts and you know, we can't change our own hearts. That's why, that's why he thanks the Father. Because when someone does receive these truths, who deserves the thanks? It goes to God. So it, it's a cause for thanks because the Father reveals these things, but he doesn't reveal them to the wise. In other words, it's not that somebody who has wisdom never converts. It's not that somebody who is intelligent never comes to Christ. But he is saying that, that God has, has given the gospel to people who aren't worldly wise, who aren't puffed up in their own eyes, who don't see their own cleverness. Instead, he picks simple people to give the gospel to, people who aren't too sophisticated to hear the truth of what he has to say. But see, there's more Jesus wants to say about the revelation of the Father and his own role in that. So let's keep going to verse 27. That will actually take us to our second point. Because the second point this morning is the son who knows. Um, There's no way to open this point of our text without delving into the mystery that is the Trinity. And so, you know, here we we actually have that as our shorter catechism question. How many uh, persons are there in the Godhead? What is God? Who is God? All of these questions relate to our sermon today. And so we are going to be in deep waters at this point. Um, Our comfort is, at least, that Jesus is the one who's leading us there. Um, 
But I need to caution as we look at this text that there are things that we can ask that the text answers for us. There are things that we can affirm, but we can affirm them because God has clearly answered them. Um, But I want you to know there is a great deal of mystery here as well. Um, The church father, uh, Gregory of Nazianzen, he does this really good job of putting us in our place before we try prying too far into the mysteries of God. So when we ask questions about the Trinity, almost immediately we want to ask the kind of questions that the Scripture sometimes doesn't give to us, right? So he's talking at one point about what does it mean that the Son is begotten? Jesus calls himself the only begotten Son of God. And the creeds take that word, and it's in our creeds, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. But what does that mean? Well, Gregory starts to talk about that, and he starts to explore that and, and work through that question, but he actually kind of reproves us for pushing too hard. Here's what he says. How has the Son been begotten? God's begetting ought to have the tribute of our reverent silence. The important point is for you to learn that the Son has been begotten, As to the way it happens, we shall not concede that even angels, much less you, know that. Shall I tell you the way? It is a way known only to the begetting Father and the begotten Son. Anything beyond this fact is hidden by a cloud and escapes your dull vision. Uh, My vision is very dull, uh, and he's right about that. (laughs) Listen to this. This This is another of the fathers. He says this. It is not permitted to scrutinize the mysteries on high with the intention of comprehending them. On the subject of divine realities, we can know that they are, but not what they are. We can know that they are, but not what they are. So so we can say what God has told us about himself, but if we try to pry underneath of those things and we try to, to go even deeper, what we're going to find is that we are deeply confused. Um, And so the caution here is very rightly given to us that when we talk about something like the Trinity, we are limited to revelation. We're limited to what God has said. We're limited to Jesus' words. And we should be very careful, ever daring to go beyond what the text says. So I've been talking about the Trinity. I've mentioned the Trinity. What's the Trinity? If I might put it very simply, it is this. There is one God and only one God in all of the universe one creator of heaven and earth. But within that one God, it has been revealed to us that there are three persons. To have one God and three persons is not a contradiction. One what and three what's would be a contradiction. The Trinity is not that. It is one what and three who's. Right? These three persons are all co-equal and each possess the fullness of deity. None of them was created Uh, The Son was begotten, not created, as the Creed says. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son, but was not created by the Father and Son. There was a time when one was, there was not a time when one was, and the other was not. They have always been eternally in relationship together, one God, three persons. Now, can I explain that? No, I can't even explain eternity to you, so... Going, explaining what happens in eternity is even further away from my skill level. I I can tell you what scripture says. We can put the pieces together. We can take all of the pieces that God has given to us and we can can assemble them into something that is coherent and that gets us 
uh, that, and that God has revealed to us and that is accurate. But it's a little bit like looking at a volcano and you realize there's so much more underneath. Um, when we look, about, look at these deep things, we need to be grateful that God has told us what we know because we would never discover or explain this without his word to us. If, if Jesus hadn't spoken of these things, then it, it is, we wouldn't know about the Trinity. Right? We need God to reveal these things to us. So we'll be able to affirm some things that we find in the text. Don't expect that we can push down all the way into the foundations and understand them thoroughly. Because there comes a point where all is darkness and we have to be pleased to let God provide us with the answers. But as we think about what Jesus says in verse 27, he says, No one knows the Father except the Son. I'm reminded, and I, I, this is not a rabbit trail, it might feel like a rabbit trail for a moment, but I'm reminded of a few years ago when I was, I was getting my philosophy degree and I was exposed to the writings of a theologian named John Hick. Now, don't go out and buy the works of John Hick. John Hick argued that the main goal of every world religion is to move people from self-centeredness to reality-centeredness. That's how he put it. And so he said a world religion, uh, if it's a valid world religion, uh, is, uh, is something that changes someone from self-centered to reality-centered. And so because of that, he said that every world religion really is an authentic path to salvation. He said every world religion is a path to God. Um, Many paths lead to God. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Um, He was saying we can find peace with God in many ways. So someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, but they're a a Jewish person and they're practicing real Judaism, uh, they can be saved apart from any knowledge of Christ. Uh, A Muslim someone who doesn't believe in Jesus uh, and believes that Muhammad is a prophet, he can still find a path to God. Why? Because it's sending you away from self-centeredness. You're supposed to pray five times a day and so on. And yet Jesus runs right into this view of John Hick, doesn't he? Because he says, first of all, he leads off by saying, come to me. He says, don't go to them, don't go somewhere else. Don't, he doesn't say, at least go somewhere. <laughs> he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How does Jesus make that invitation? How can he say that if you come to him, you'll find rest for your souls? What an outrageous claim. Could you imagine me as your pastor saying, come to me. You'll find rest for your souls if you come, come to me. Adam, come to me. Um, Hopefully, elders would pull me out of this pulpit faster than I could finish the sermon. Why? Because that would be a false promise. I can't give your souls rest. There's no rest in this person here. But Jesus has the temerity to say that because he says he can do that, and he tells them why he can do that. He's telling us why Hick and why anyone else who thinks that all the paths lead to God He's actually saying why they're wrong. He's saying he's he's different. He is saying he is unique. He's saying he's not like them. Part of his explanation of his uniqueness among um, among all these others who have come before and all who would ever come after, we actually find it in verse 27. Verse 27 is the bedrock for all the invitations that take place here. Because here here you go. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So this is, this is where it all comes out of. This is, if you're looking for the location of the spring that, that the fountain comes out of, this is, this is the place. So look at the two roles here. The father entrusts, the son receives. The father entrusts, the son receives. What does the son receive? Well, in the text, he says all things. When he says all things, he's not talking about the the physical universe here. He's talking about those who have access to the father through the son. He's, He's talking about anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal the Father. So when he says, all things have been handed over to me, he's really talking about his people. He's talking about his followers. And he regards them as a gift from the Father. Actually, that idea of being a gift from the Father is a term that Jesus uses in John chapter 6. Jesus says, he refers to those whom the Father has given me. So think of that language of a gift. Think of that language as being given. You see, he's talking about why we can trust Jesus. He is telling you why Jesus, as opposed to every other leader, every other teacher, every other rabbi, every other individual that ever came before, why you can go to Jesus and find rest and why you won't find it anywhere else. Why is Jesus not just another leader of a world religion where you can line them all up and pick your favorite, maybe the one that fits the most with your culture or your aesthetics or your preferences, and just go with him? Why not line them all up and have your choice? Well, Jesus is telling us why not just anybody can give us rest. He's telling us what makes him unique from Abraham or Moses or Muhammad or Krishna or Joseph Smith or the Buddha or anyone else. Why is it that only the Son of God can bring us to the Father? Why can't we come to the Father through Moses or John the Baptist or Paul or Mary or someone else? Why is it that we can't go to someone else if that's our preference? Someone else, as long as they take away our self-focus. The fundamental difference between Jesus and every other religious leader is they don't know the Father as he does. No one else does. Jesus is saying that he has a unique relationship to the Father that no other person in all of world history, past, present, or future, has. What specifically does Jesus here say that it is that marks him out from all that came before and all that came after? He says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. He uses this word, know. Uh, He uses this concept of knowing. This is not a passive knowing that Jesus is talking about. He is not saying, I've heard of the Father, and the Father has heard of me. Because if, if that was the case, then, then with a little more information, we could all be like Jesus. If we just knew a little more, if we knew, understood a little more, then we could be Jesus, right? That is not what marks him out from everyone else. You see, the truth is, the Son knows the Father in a way that is thorough, perfect, 
and absolute. He fully and completely and eternally shares in the same divine nature that the Father and the Spirit share in. He dwells eternally as Son with the Father. They share a type of eternal communion with one another, forever knowing and loving one another without, eternally without beginning or end. That is the relationship the Son and the Father have together. The full nature of God is shared between them. In John 15, 16, 16, 15, Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. There is nothing, including the divine nature, that the Father has that the Son does not also by nature have. And so when Jesus says that he knows the Father, he is showing us He's showing us the tip of the iceberg is what he's doing. He's giving us a tiny sample of gold from down in the mine. He's gone down and he's bringing it up and he gives us a nugget. And there's a whole vein down there that we have never seen. It's the thing that is true because of the deep eternal realities of who he is and how he knew the Father before anything was made that has been made. None of this is true of any who ever came before or since. Jesus stands unique in all of history and the future of the world. There is no one like him. There is no one who even comes close. And all of these truths about the relationship between the Father and the Son, they are the reason why any of us can find rest for ourselves. John Newton, not the John Newton here, but the John Newton, the the hymn writer, the famous hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, he said this so beautifully. He was such a, um, he was a a pastor, and even though he had such a dark past and such a dark sinful past, he had such a great sense of the holiness of God and the graciousness of Christ. It is hard to imagine someone writing Amazing Grace and not understanding the grace of God. And listen to what he says in one of his sermons. He says, The holy God, apart from his grace, is a consuming fire to sinners. And we cannot stand before him. But now he reveals himself. He dwells as in his temple in the man, Christ Jesus. He has entrusted all his glory and all his grace into his hands. And to him we are to look. On him we are to depend for all the blessings we need for time and eternity. For all things are delivered to him of the Father. When we obey Jesus in this passage, right? When we do what he's saying, what's his application? His application is come to me. So when we do that, when we come to Jesus, he is offering us rest because he possesses the whole life of God in himself. He is telling us, yes, you were made to know God. You have Uh, sought him and you've run from him all your life but one thing you can be sure of uh, you were made for him and so Jesus is saying come to me and you will at last have him because you will have me and in having me you will have found him and you will have found your purpose the application is in a sense this answer like Peter does Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life Right? Peter is saying, there's no equivalent to you out there, Jesus. There's no, nobody else that stands on the same level. There's no one out there who knows God the way that you do. And 
And if he had known at the time how he was supposed to answer, then he would have said, there's no one who has the relationship you have with the Father. There's no one to whom we shall go. And that's, that's the application for us this morning. Go to Jesus. There is no one else. There is no one else. You can never improve upon Jesus. Why? Because no one knows the Father except the Son. Jesus gives us a deep answer for why he is worthy of being listened to. Third this morning, Jesus brings us to the Spirit who gives rest. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead we struggle the most with, I think, from a human perspective. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. Um, You know, we hear of the Father and the Son, and we have some knowledge of human analogies. We've heard of fathers. We've heard of sons. Even if we don't have a father in our life, or even if we don't have a son in our life, we still have some sense of what that relationship must be like. And so when we hear the Father and the Son, we feel like we can connect with the Father and Son in a sense. Well, it's not like that with the Spirit. We are not used to a spirit or a breath being a person. Right? You can't think of a person that you know who is a spirit. And yet the spirit is spoken of using personal pronouns in the New Testament. Masculine personal pronouns. He, his. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit has. He is as much a person as the Father and Son are. Within the Godhead, we're, we're given glimpses of that relationship that exists when, when it comes to the persons. You know, just as the Son is begotten by the Father, what about the Spirit? Well, to use the language of John fifteen twenty six, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds. That's the biblical language. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and Son from eternity, never at any point in time. And at that point, you might say, okay, explain that to me. And that's where I start to go and run behind Gregory of Nazianzus' gown, right? (laughs) Just protect me, Gregory. Um, I want to remind you that these are things that we are supposed to know because God has said it, but that doesn't mean we can comprehend it. Um. Come help me, Gregory. All right, here's what Gregory says. What then is proceeding? Well, let's go ahead and explain every detail of the inner workings of the Trinity, and then we shall all go mad together for prying into God's secrets. So that's it. That's all the help I have from Gregory. Um, (laughs) I, I said this before. We want to stay constrained to what Scripture says. We don't want to wander outside of what the bounds of Scripture uh, set for us. You know, there are those who've gone deeper than I am here by far. Uh, I, I actually don't discourage you from reading those who would go deeper into these things. Read the Cappadocian Fathers. Read the writings of Athanasius. These are worthwhile. But just know that the deeper you dig, you will hit the limits of your ability to comprehend these mysteries. And that is actually by design. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Romans 11.34. At some point, you go, I'm going to listen to what you say, Jesus, and I'm going to let myself be constrained in what I'm willing to speculate about or try to comprehend. We, We can't know his mind. We can only know his words. These are just a few things we can affirm about the Spirit, and that's because we've been told them by the Scripture. 
But let's go back to the passage. Um, Jesus is offering to give rest to those who come to him. Um, The Spirit is the one through whom this rest comes. Why? Because it isn't physical rest. This is why uh, I, I bring the Spirit in, even though his name isn't raised in the passage. Because Jesus says this is not physical rest that you find in Jesus. He says it's rest for your souls. So it's spiritual rest. It, it pertains to the soul of human beings. It pertains to our spirit. And therefore, the third point this morning reminds us that while Jesus promises great, precious, full rest, and while Jesus has accomplished all that's required to give us rest, it is the spirit who takes what Jesus has done and applies it to our hearts. Now, I'm very careful to say the rest comes through the spirit not to the exclusion of the Son or the Father. So I say it comes through the Spirit. I don't say it only comes from the Spirit. Because everything that each person of the Trinity does, in some sense, is done with and in the other persons of the Trinity too. This is is true even of the incarnation of the Son. You might think the incarnation of the Son of God is something that strictly belongs to the Son, and yet He was sent by the Father And the Spirit created his human nature in Mary's womb from her substance. Uh, So even the incarnation is done with the participation of all three persons. Why do I highlight this? Because what Jesus is talking about is one God, not three gods. So don't imagine that the Son is over here doing his thing. The Father is over here doing his thing. The Spirit is, is over here doing his thing. Don't, don't imagine that. If you, if you imagine that, you're, you're off. You're, you're, you're off in the wrong direction. Because all three persons of the Godhead share in the same divine nature and the same divine will and the same divine purpose. They are united in their work. If they didn't, then they would be three distinct beings with three distinct wills, but they are not. They share in one divine being. They are not the same, but they are not separate. Even as they are distinct, they are not different. Even as you can distinguish them, they, are, they all share the same goals, same desires, same purposes. The Son loves what the Father loves. The Father delights in what the Son delights in. The Spirit uh, is the Spirit of the Son and works for the same purpose the Son works for. They are of one mind and one will. How is that possible to have three persons with one divine will? Well... Uh, again, do I have to pull out Gregory of Nazianzus again? He's, he's going to make fun of me if I try answering that question. When we talk about divine realities, we can know that they are, but not what they are. This is one of those questions we can affirm without exhaustively understanding them. You know, it's not that we're going to places that God doesn't want us to go to. Jesus obviously wants us to dip our toes into this water here in this passage, because if we don't dip our toes in, then we don't know the real reason why we should come to him. Jesus says he knows the Father. Does that mean the Spirit doesn't know the Father? Certainly not. 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul reminds us, who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So even the Spirit knows the Father. The Spirit is known as the Spirit of Christ. And so these two persons, in a sense, know the Father together, but the Son in a way that is still somehow unique to the Son, and the Spirit in a way that is somehow unique to the Spirit, such that they can be distinguished but never separated from one another. 
I know I'm talking about heavy things here. Uh, and you're probably like, come up for breath. We need to take a deep breath. I, I hope that what you find down here, though, is, is deep, rich stuff, right? Not intimidating material, but I, I think Jesus wants us to go here. I, I'm trying to at least honor what Jesus is, is saying here and say, you need a bedrock understanding of why, why it is Christ and no one else. Why is it Christ and no one else? And he's giving you the answer if you can hear it. Why have I gone so far off this ra- on this rabbit trail, which I argued is not a rabbit trail? Um, go back to what Jesus has been saying one more time, one more time. Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is concerned for our spiritual state. He cares about our souls. In fact, he loves our souls to death. He loves our souls to his own death. And he doesn't leave our souls helpless. And the life raft he throws us is actually saving. And it's actually good. You see, the reality is his own spirit is at work bringing people to himself even responding to Jesus' command, that's why Jesus is so thankful that people actually do come to me. Come to me. That is not done in our own strength. That is not done in our own power. Um, even in the coming to Jesus, there is resting. Why? Because it is not a work of us. It is a work of the Spirit. We still play a role. We still desire Christ and come, but all of the strength, all of the power, all the energy to do that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so you might think of the word as power as something that makes you feel, feel strengthened to do something, but actually the irony is coming to Jesus is like a weakening. It is like a resting. It is like finally putting your guard down, stopping trying to be the strong one, ceasing trying to be powerful, ceasing trying to be great, and instead letting him be your greatness and your power and your strength. That's why he uses the word rest. Rest. Jesus says no one knows the Father except the Son. But he actually says a little more than that, doesn't he? He also says this, And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, Jesus wants you to know that he is is inviting you in. It is an invitation. He is telling you that if you come to him, God will not be a stranger. The Father will not be distant. The Spirit will dwell within you. You will know the Son, and you will know the Father, and you will have rest for your soul. Don't you love that picture of that salvation that Jesus uses here. I go back to it again. He uses that word rest. See how different Jesus is, right? Not that, not only does he know the Father and and so stand head and shoulders, mountains above everyone else who ever came before, but he calls us to do the most humble thing that he could call us to do. Repent of your sins and trust in him. He wants us to rest. He calls us to stop struggling, stop working, Stop trying to earn. Stop trying to be worthy. Stop trying to earn your own way. Stop trying to deserve this. And instead, will you just take the gift? He says, rest. He says, come. Find life outside of yourself. Find life in him. 
Think of, all, think of all the verbs in this passage, what he calls us to do. Come, take, learn, find. Every single word here, all four of those words is a word that takes us away from ourselves and reminds us that he has the life. He has the hope. He has the strength. He has everything that our hearts deep down have always yearned to know. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you invite us today to share in something both incredible and incomprehensible. You invite us to rest in you and to share in the life of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can know the same Father that you know, that we can be indwelt by the same Spirit who proceeds from you and from the Father. What an incredible, life-giving, but also incredibly mysterious privilege that we have. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen.